Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to the Voices in Leadership, a series which focuses on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the pleasure to direct this program and to introduce today's guest. Our guest has had many roles, author, negotiator, policymaker, and power broker, but probably is best known for his long tenure in the U.S. Congress. Senator Tom Daschle was first elected in 1978 to the U.S. House of Representatives and then in 1994 to the U.S. Senate as the Democratic leader. He navigated the Senate through some of its most historic economic and natural security challenges and has been considered one of the Senate's leading thinkers on health care. He has written two books on his time in the Senate as well as co-authored a seminar book on health care entitled Critical, What We Can Do About the Health Care Crisis. Senator Daschle is the founder and CEO of the Daschle Group, a public policy advisor of the consulting firm Baker Donaldson in Washington, D.C. Born in Aberdeen, South Dakota, Senator Daschle attended South Dakota State University, graduating in 1969. He served for three years as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force Strategic Command. Following his military service, he spent five years as an aide to South Dakota Senator James Arubrics. After leaving the Senate in 2005, Senator Daschle joined Alston and Byrd and DLA Piper, respectively, as a special policy advisor before establishing the Daschle Group in 2014. When he is not being a thoughtful and expert leader, he is an avid runner who enjoys cooking and painting. <laughs> Art, of course. <laughs> Before I turn this session over to Dr. Robert Blendon, Senior Associate Dean of the Division of Policy Translation and Leadership Development here at the school who will conduct today's interview, please join me as we welcome Senator Tom Daschle to the Voices in Leadership at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, the Senator and I have agreed that we're going to have a somewhat different format today. So let me give the context for it. I've had a chance over the last few months uh, to meet with students at the Education School, the Kennedy School, and here. And students are incredibly concerned about the political polarization in the Congress and what it means for them, particularly students who want to go into public service. And many of them have said to me, I'm almost depressed. I want to devote my life to this. How did it happen? Uh, what, what could we do about it? And it really hangs over a lot of the discussions we have. So uh, the senators played uh, many roles, but one of them is currently uh, co-chairing a small group of former Senate leaders trying to look uh, at this political polarization, this divisions, because how can you make policy for the future of health if you can't get agreement in, in the U.S. Senate? Really, what is it this is going to be about in the future? So we've agreed that I'm going to ask him uh, his perceptions of how this happened, where it went, uh, how we could change, what young people could look like in, in, in the future. This is really focused on leadership in a very broad level. 
how we change and go back to some way where the United States Congress is able to address the most serious problems we have. And so uh, the senator's <coughs> written about this, he's given a number of talks about this, and I wanted our time with him to be focused on this problem that outside this room students raise with me all the time. So, uh, Senator, help me, how did the Senate get into the position that it is today in terms of the polarization? Well, Bob, first of all, thank you for having me here. Betty, I'm so grateful for the opportunity, and it's great to be back on the campus of Harvard once again. A very, very special friend, and Dr. Howard Coe, who's responsible for the fact that I'm here today, and appreciate his presence as well. But thank you all for, for joining me. I, I, if I could start at the 30,000-foot level, I think technology and globalization has had a lot to do with creating an environment in the world today that uh, has been transformational. Transformational in many good ways, but many, many, many ways that are disconcerting to people as well. Uh, it's created a, a somewhat of a new world order where we have uh, regions of order and regions of disorder in the world. And those regions of disorder are, are quickly falling apart. Look at Syria and Libya and Yemen. I could go through the list. But even in regions of order, uh, there are challenges that our country and other countries are facing that have uh, challenged us dramatically. And I think to a certain extent, Peggy Noonan touched on it recently, there's a level of insecurity as all of this goes through. And her comment uh, the other day in a, one of her pieces was that we have the protected and the unprotected. And it's the protected who are trying to figure this out, but it's all the unprotected who are feeling very disillusioned, very frustrated. They're unprotected with regard to economic resources and their own strength of, 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 uh, of financial uh, ability these days. And so that has kind of created a new paradox in Washington in particular. Uh, there are those who are unprotected who feel the need for authoritarianism. They want somebody to come in and fix it. And they aren't convinced there's anybody in Washington who can do it, which creates sort of a tension between outsiders and insiders. It's the outsider who sounds authoritarian who can fix it, uh, I'd say quote unquote. And, uh, <laughs> but I think there's an inclination yeah. to believe that. All at the same time, Bob, I think there's a, there's a sense about the role of government today. And, and, and that's the, 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 the real dilemma. Um, those authoritarian people, uh, advocates, are, are people that I think generally would, uh, would take extra legal measures in some cases to fix it. Uh, but yet at the same time, the real philosophical and ideological divide is really about the role of government in healthcare, in just about any aspect of public policy today. What is the role of government today in this transformational society? And then at the, at the very basic level, there are several factors that have made a big difference that have generated this money. Um, money in politics today is incredibly important. I just had dinner with a congressman last night who said that for him, uh, he spends about 30 hours a week <coughs> raising money. And, 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 you know, 30 hours a week is money, is, is time spent uh, uh, not legislating, not doing the work of, of, a, of a congressman. Uh, the media has changed. It used to be the media was, was the referee, now they're the participant. And, uh, and that, that participatory level for the media especially in social media, has, uh, has changed. We were talking earlier today about how the, the narrative is 
has really become a, 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 a Twitter, a, tweet, a Twitter account, a, a tweet, uh, and all the candidates are participating in this, this new concept, this new paradigm for communication uh, using social media as their vehicle. And then the final thing, believe it or not, is the airplane. Um, the airplane has made it so easy for people to leave and, and, uh, uh, and then come back and spend less and less time in Washington. They leave on Thursday, they come back on Tuesday, we try to run the country on Wednesdays. That's not far. That's really not far from, from, from wrong. And, and not only do they therefore spend more time raising money, more time in the air, but less time legislating, they don't get to know each other like they used to. So you have all these ideological, uh, this ideological tension, but the fact that you just don't have the relationships that I had the good fortune to have when I came to Congress. So when did that change? Well, it was all gradual. Yeah. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a pivotal moment. There wasn't a time when social media automatically became. But I think with the, uh, with the advent of, of cable news, uh, Fox News, MSNBC, this, this, uh, this time over a period of maybe 20 years, when news evolved from being news to entertainment and, uh, and the creation of of, of, of whole new uh, programs built around more entertainment and opinion than real news. I think that's part of it. The social media, that was gradual. The internet and the ability to tweet, all was gradual. This technological revolution has been gradual but profoundly impactful on Washington in particular. We still haven't, policy hasn't been able to get ahead of this technological force that's occurring today and this transformation occurring as a result of technology. So uh, the relationships are all going to have to evolve to accommodate this new world. Uh, they haven't done that yet. And so we're faced with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, a lot of frustration and dysfunction. Um, there's also a debate going on among policymakers today, a strategic debate first about what the role of government is, but then there's a tactical debate. And that tactical debate is largely, do I stand my ground or do I find common ground? And there's more and more of an inclination to stand one's ground, viewing compromise as capitulation. Uh, and that comes about as a result of the fact that primaries have now become, in many cases, more important than general elections. Who votes in the primaries? The, the, the more extreme elements in both parties, the right and the left. And so if you're intimidated, are concerned about the impact of winning your next primary. Uh, there's a verb now that people use in Washington called Luger. It, that people don't want to get Lugered, and that refers to Dick Luger, who lost a primary, very respected, former chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, lost a primary because he was viewed as too compromising with the Democrats. They wanted somebody to stand their ground. Well, that message reverberated all through Washington. So on the right and left, but especially on the right, you can't be seen. I actually have talked to people about finding common ground on health care, and they said, listen, I'll help you, but I, you can't release my name. I, can't, I don't want to be seen doing this publicly because I'll get crucified if I do. Well, that fear is so, first of all, counterintuitive, uh, but, but secondly, so counterproductive in terms of finding ways with which to truly govern as we go forward. So does that change what the majority leader does in the Senate? It does. Yeah. It does change. I, the majority leader today is expected to be a partisan warrior. Um, 
you know, Senator Lott, uh, one of, I, I had the good fortune to work with three Republican leaders, Bob Dole, Trent Lott, and, and uh, Bill Frist. And uh, Trent and I served, of the 10 years that I served as leader, uh, I served with Trent for six years. And we just, uh, for the last couple of years, we've been writing a book. We call it Crisis Point. It came out about six <coughs> weeks ago, available on Amazon, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and other places. Uh, but uh, Feel free to tweet about it. Exactly. You can tweet about it. <laughs> I have. Uh, but but uh, Trent and I uh, have both talked about this. It, it used to be that uh, we went through some very difficult times. We went through impeachment of a president, the only second one in history. We had to go through 9-11, the anthrax attack in my office uh, and elsewhere. Um, the first 50-50 Senate, um, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. Uh, two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. All of that was happened on our watch, unfortunately. But what it did was forced us to bring our caucuses together and say, okay, we're in a real fix. What do we do about it? How do we, how do we get around this? How do we address these challenges? And unfortunately, that doesn't happen anymore. We had a phone on each other's desk, a red phone, where I picked it up and I knew the only person who would be answering that phone was Trent Lott. Um, and uh, I think that level of communication and cooperation and, and uh, the, the, the degree of collaboration is no longer there, and I really lament that. So today, caucuses are held uh, three times a week, and they become pep rallies for your team, uh, pep rallies for the Democrats and pep rallies for the Republicans. They charge out, and we're going to defeat the enemy. That is the other side. And that isn't the way to govern. You can't, you can't run a country that way indefinitely. So uh, I gather a number of health care issues get caught in the, between the two armies. No question. Yeah. Absolutely. They're, you know, we've seen that, of course, with the Affordable Care Act, which started as a Republican idea with yeah. the Heritage Foundation, yeah. as you well know. And, uh, but now it's become an anathema to even uh, hint that you could be supportive of any one of the many provisions that should enjoy broad bipartisan support, and actually among the voters do. Uh, the good news is that I'm, I'm, I'm a little more hopeful about the future of health if we can get beyond the ACA. There's a consensus about what our goal is. We want a high-performance, high-value health care sector with better access, better quality, and lower cost. That's not a Republican idea or a Democratic idea. It's not a conservative or a liberal idea. Uh, and around that, you can build an agenda that has to do with more transparency, trying to figure out a way to get to higher value and more quality, uh, recognizing the importance of technology with electronic health records and telehealth, uh, access around uh, uh, perhaps a broader scope of practice. I mean, all of those ideas, research, there's a lot of support for yeah. research. Uh, uh, and so I think there are components to that health agenda that potentially enjoy broader bipartisan support than we're inclined to believe. So we always ask the question here, where does public health fit in that? Is that the world of the bipartisan support or is that the world of a conflict? Well, I think it depends on what the role of government in providing public health is. Uh, the more one sees government as somewhat of, a, uh, of, of the solution, I think the more uh, ideological and the more polarized it becomes. Um, I think there is a balance to be created between um, public and, and, and private uh, health sectors. I, I've said before many, many times, and I 
truly believe that the essence of my foundation of, of, of understanding of, of our health care sector is that we don't have a system if it's a central decision making and administrative authority we have a collage of subsystems public and private and therein lies the solution in the United States a collage of public and private uh, mechanisms to address the challenges including public health that we face today so what would it take for a Senate majority leader to get people discussing that well, I think the most important thing is I think us, a lot of students would sign up for this, so I, this is an important issue here. I, I, actually, the good news is that they are, th things are ongoing. I, I, you mentioned the Bipartisan Policy Center. Right. Uh, we've worked on a number of projects. I just worked on a project with Newt Gingrich, who certainly uh, uh, has a different perspective about many things than I do. But we came together uh, to look for ways that we might say, where do we go after ACA in terms of uh, adjustments, and challenges, opportunities that we have to be cognizant of. And uh, I worked with Tommy Thompson on long-term care. There's right. another idea, another. So I think it starts with dialogue. It starts with more communication. But I go back to an earlier comment that I made, Bob. As long as we're fundraising and as long as 53 members of the House live in their, in their offices on sofas, um, you know, we're not going to create the environment necessary for collective consideration, thoughtful consideration of these issues. We've got to get back to a point, and it's going to be hard, I mean, but we've got to get back to a point where these debates aren't screaming matches and where you need a public advisory before your children even watch. Um, I think we've got to, we've got to have more uh, civility, and civility is critical in building these relationships. So how, <clears throat> how do you start from an individual leadership point? <clears throat> Excuse me. I think what you do is, first of all, and, and Trent and I try to address this in the book, we've got to create more venues for dialogue. Right now we have virtually none. Um, I asked a, a member recently, when was the last joint caucus we had in the Senate? between Republicans and Democrats. And they couldn't give me an answer. They couldn't remember when the last one was. But it was several years ago. Um, little things like that. Changing our, our schedule. You know, now as I, I, I literally, uh, 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 this congressman uh, told me that he had, he's, uh, he'd just gotten back last night, normally comes back on Tuesday. But he'll be here through Thursday, and then he'll leave Thursday afternoon. I think we need three weeks uh, a month where we have five days of legislative work. Uh, that may sound so simple but and so ridiculous. I mean, how many people here uh, don't spend five days going to school or working or doing something? Don't raise but your we, hand. <laughs> we moved away from that. We've migrated away from that in Washington. But just having time in Washington, Bob, yeah. and then creating those avenues, those venues for uh, for dialogue. Uh, I, we used to do things at night sometimes with spouses, go out and, and uh, Washington is a rich resource for places to go and uh, history to experience. And so we used to, at night, we used to explore the Smithsonian's or the National Archives or the Library of Congress and, and create venues for socializing more. And uh, unfortunately, none of that happens anymore today. So it's probably gotten worse for the presidents. Is that your view? It has. Was it has. there a 
president who was able to sort of have a different relationship in your career with the Congress? Well, all presidents have had different relationships. Well, I mean, I, a more positive one. I, <laughs> <laughs> I miss the thermometer. Okay. Well, I would give, uh, I, I have to say, I would give Bill Clinton a, a lot of credit. Um, Trent Lott tells, tells a story uh, that uh, I've heard him tell often where we went through this grueling, terrible impeachment experience. It lasted six weeks. We were the managers of a trial on the Senate floor for six weeks. Um, the final votes were taken on, on the articles of impeachment on a Tuesday. He got a call uh, the following Thursday, the next Thursday, two days later, from President Clinton asking about legislation and the kinds of things that they're working on that the president wanted to address. Never once did he even bring up impeachment. Um, Bill Clinton invited us to, to Camp David frequently. I remember bowling at, you know, he had a different schedule than most of us. He was, <laughs> he was a night owl. And we, I remember bowling once uh, at one in the morning. And uh, the president, if you picture this, the president trying to give Madeleine Albright a lesson on how you bowl. <laughs> uh, and uh, at one in the morning. And, uh, but it's those things you remember yeah. and those things that create a relationship that really have profound consequences. We minimize it today. But that's what we've got to do again. We need inclusive leadership. You know, I, 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 every, I had the opportunity to meet all the president, presidents since President Reagan um, in various ways. And, and oftentimes a president will ask uh, somebody who's been around a little while for advice. And my advice to every one of the presidents was the same. Include the Congress. Try to bring them down to the White House on regular meetings. And, and really, the only president that took me up on that uh, with any degree of regularity for a period of time was right after 9-11, President Bush had us down at the White House um, at least once a week and sometimes twice a week at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, to walk through what we were going to do that week or that day to accomplish something. That doesn't happen today, unfortunately. But you've got to be inclusive, whether you're a majority leader, a president, uh, or anybody else in a leadership role in Washington today. That inclusion, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I, an earlier group heard me say this, but um, is, is a, the best way to persuade is with your ears. And I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. You've got to be a good listener. The best way to persuade is to listen and to engage. And we don't see that level of engagement today. So from the presidential side, why don't we? Well, I think the president, this president, I've had many conversations with him about it, and he believes he gave it his best effort, and, uh, and he didn't get the response that he expected on the other side. My advice to him, and it's, you know, it's, it, I don't think he'd mind if I shared it, is that you've got to be persistent. Jimmy Carter once told me that he made over a 1,000 phone calls uh, over the... Uh, period of the Panama Canal campaign mm -hmm. to members of the Senate, um, calling people incessantly until they wore them down and got <laughs> the job done. And it passed by one vote. Um, so I think persistence matters, and you've just got to continue to say, look, I'm going to try every avenue, and sooner or later, I'm going to break down this wall of resistance, and 
and find a way to, you know, even if they would meet on a Tuesday to say, let, let, if, is there a nomination we could do this week? That's all I'm asking, just one nomination. Something you could point to as an achievement uh, for that week. And then you start building up to something maybe a little bit more adventuresome legislatively. But, but why not start where you think there could be some agreement? And it's got to be a give and take. I mean, it's, you know, the president has to say, well, what can I do for you? Lyndon Johnson did that very well. Um, and we just don't see that today. By the way, in terms of, just to give you a sense of, of, of dysfunction, not that you needed any more evidence of it, but <laughs> Lyndon Johnson was, was majority leader uh, for, for uh, six years, uh, from 1954 to 1960. And a quiz question would be, so how many filibusters do you think Lyndon Johnson faced in six years? Well, the answer is one, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1957. If I'd ask how many filibusters do you think we've had in the last six years, my guess is you you wouldn't come close because the number is 422. Wow. So that, in a matter of 40 years, look at the contrast and where we are from where we were in Lyndon Johnson's time. Uh, so let me ask one more question I've always wondered about. How, as Senate Majority Leader, do you deal with the issue of dealing with a very broad Senate and country and you're the senator from a small state like South Dakota? Not that South Dakota doesn't look like the rest of the country, but it probably is different enough. So when you fly home, the conversation has to be different than when you're back at the Senate Majority Leader. How do you make that work? Well, there's an arcane rule in the Senate that uh, if in an election the other person gets more votes than you do, you can't sit at your desk anymore after that election. <laughs> and uh, so you're very cognizant of that arcane rule. And, um, but basically, a, a, a senator has several roles, and the one that we most attribute to any political figure in Washington is that of legislating. But, but it goes way beyond that. It's constituent service. And in South Dakota, South Dakota is a small state, uh, 740,000 people, 77,000 square miles, uh, 350 communities, 95% uh, have fewer than 1,000 people. Um, but constituent service matters. They, all kinds of issues. Uh, and, and it's not only constituent service as it relates to a social security problem or a veterans problem. It could be a community challenge. It could be the need for something in the community. And uh, we had earmarks, and I lament, frankly, the loss of earmarks today because I think there is a value to a, a legislator's role in, in how these priorities are established. But uh, there was abuse, and uh, we could have fixed that, but we didn't. But I think partly you try to balance um, your role as leader uh, with a recognition of the importance of the other roles that you have as a senator. But at the, at the end of the day, if you find yourself in disagreement with your constituency, you owe them first the explanation, and then you, had hoped, uh, you hope that in large measure you can persuade them that there is another side, and even if they don't agree, um, they, could, they could understand that there is another side. Uh, and so you spend a lot of time. Um, in, I made a, 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 a pledge when I got elected to the Senate that I would get to all 66 counties every year, uh, and I did. And so in August, uh, but I tried to maintain that three weeks on and one week off. But in August, what I did was I'd get in, I'd get in my car by myself and drive around the state and just show up. 
and it was the most enjoyable thing I did. I learned. I'd walk into a school, uh, and and they'd call a a, a a student assembly. I'd walk into a business, and they'd give me a tour, a manufacturing facility. I'd go to a, a farm, and they'd take me around the the farm, and I learned so much from that. And um, so I miss those days, but that's basically my long answer to your good question. Uh, Senator, why don't we sort of wrap up this first section with sort of your view to my young people who are worried about the future. Well, I guess my, my hope is that you'll all understand how <coughs> critical it is uh, that you stay engaged. Uh, there are only, a democracy today relies on one of two things. Either you have to fight for it, uh, as over a million people in our country have fought and died so that our country could be preserved, or you have to work at it. We don't have the option of doing neither. So if you're, if, if you're not called upon to fight for it, you have to work at it. And the degree to which we all work at it will be the degree to which we elevate our, our, our prospects for success as a country. There's a great poem um, by Archibald MacLeish. He was our poet laureate for three years in the 30s, and he became he became uh, our Librarian of Congress all during World War II. And he announced when he became Librarian of Congress that he would quit writing poetry so long as he had that job because he couldn't do both. Well, he made one exception. He attended a ceremony at Arlington to watch soldiers being buried uh, from his experience, their experiences in World War II. And he wrote a poem called Our Dead Young Soldiers, and he was it's a poem I would, I would urge you to read, but he speaks as a soldier from the grave, saying, we give you our deaths, give them their meaning. And I think that's the challenge for everybody in our country. We have to give all of those deaths their meaning. Benjamin Franklin once admonished a woman in a crowd uh, when asked if this was going to be a monarchy or a republic. He responded to the woman in the crowd, ma'am, it'll be a republic if we can keep it. Well, the only way we're going to keep it is to fight for it or to work at it. And I believe that community service, that, that a commitment to country and a, and a commitment to service is the highest calling in a democracy. And we need, desperately, young leadership to commit to public service, to commit to leadership, to work at it so that we can continue to keep this republic as strong as it needs to be. You see why we asked the senators to do this. Thank you very, very much. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.